Good morning. It's Thursday, July 30, 2020. COVID-19 remains very active in the U.S. We've had more than 4.5 million total cases, currently more than 2.2 million active, and sadly, 154,000 deaths. The virus has spread from the New York and California regions to the interior of the country and has also moved into Florida. So Florida, Texas, Arkansas, Tennessee, numerous other states are considered hotspots currently, and we shall see uh, how we recover from all of this. This morning, we have with us Doug Shapiro. Doug and I go back more than 20 years into the investment banking world. He's had an illustrious career, and he successfully made the transition from the banking side of the business to the corporate world, to the upper echelons of the corporate world. He has since retired and has, or I should say semi-retired, and published an article that I found very interesting with regard to media and the changing technology. The article is titled The Future of Media, Fewer Bigger Hits, An Even Longer Tale, No Middle and Lower Returns. He looks at media generally, meaning television, radio, everything we're doing, Netflix, watching things on your iPad, your iPhone, and discusses the changing landscape and what we're, uh, what we can expect going forward. That's broad implications against music, television, intellectual property rights, whether or not we go to the movie theater, all these things. So momentarily, Doug will join us and we will begin the interview. Hello, Doug. Hello, Tom. How are you? Quite well. How are you doing? Good. I should warn you that because we're in the middle of Los Angeles with uh, kind of a view of the Hollywood side from here, you'll hear a truck or an ambulance go by every now and then, and I just can't help it. It's the the virtues of the home studio. Yeah, no problem. It's, uh, and I'll do the same that my 11-year-old always throw the door open to my office and shout something. All right, if we can get a dog barking with that, we're all good. <laughs> yeah, I have an odd dog. He's very he he really his the only thing that incites him to bark is the UPS guy. Otherwise, he's pretty mute. Here we go. I have the pleasure of introducing Doug Shapiro, whom I've known for I looked Doug more than twenty years or just about twenty years. Wow. And yeah, long time, huh? Yeah. And Doug has recently written an article that we'll get to in a minute on the future of media. But what I'd hope to lead things off, Doug, is to just tell us a bit about your career path is, you know, you're one of the few people I know that have successfully transitioned from the investment banking or what we call the sell side of the business to the highest echelons of the corporate ranks. Sure. I'd be happy to do that. And uh, before I start, thank you so much for, for having me do this. It'd be fun and hopefully informative, although you already made me feel old with that uh, that 20-year point. I uh yes when I when when we worked together as you know um I was a sell side equity analyst which means for I don't, I don't know I think of a diverse audience those are stock analysts that are that are uh commenting in the paper about this stock or that stock and I did that for about 15 years focused on cable and satellite and entertainment and a little bit of telecom. You know, Tom, being an analyst is a pretty interesting Rorschach blot on your personality because um, there are a number of ways one can be successful in that job. There's different 
different areas you can focus on. Yeah, you could be a great stock picker or you could uh, have great relationships with uh, the corporate executives and, and do a great job of introducing investors to those executives. And what I always really liked focusing on were the big strategic issues, the big kind of tectonic plates that were shifting. Cable and telecom in particular lend themselves to that because they um, they are subject to some big tectonic issues, changes in technology, changes in market structure, changes in regulation, things like that. So I really like that part of the job. And for me, it was I always had a, a an itch to go from being an analyst, which is uh, a job where you're really a, a critic of strategy, a Monday morning quarterback of strategy, that itch to go and work at a company and um, and help guide the strategy. So I always had, you know, like I said, this itch or this ambition to go work for a media company. And so um, after I left the sell side, I went to Time Warner, where um, I had the opportunity to run investor relations for about six years. So that was basically going just being on the opposite side of the table. And I can tell you, um, after 15 years of listening to earnings calls from the outside, it was very surreal being inside the room for my first earnings call of Time yeah. Warner way back when, and then seeing how the sausage is made, which is always always different than you think it's going to be. And then uh, after, after that six years, I was at Time Warner in total for about 12. So I spent uh, six years running investor relations about uh, a year and a half, two years in um, running corporate strategy at the corporate level, and then um, and then another three years. And I don't, I don't think the math works for twelve, but something like that. Uh, my last <laughs> my last three or so years was running strategy for Turner, which is the largest division of uh, or, or, or was the largest division of what was formerly known as Time Warner. Um, it's the cable networks division, uh, CNN and Cartoon Network and TNT and TBS and all that. Yeah, and then uh, AT&T acquired Time Warner, and I left the company about six months after that, and that kind of gets us to where we are now. Fantastic. So before we get too deep into the present, can we go back to the start of your Wall Street career, and can you talk for a minute about the sorts of companies you were following at that point, uh, the assets they owned, and maybe just briefly through the transition of consolidation or breakup that got us to here? Well, at the very beginning, I covered cable, um, primarily cable and direct broadcast satellite is what they used to call it back then. I don't even know if they really say DBS that much anymore, but that was um, DirecTV and uh, EchoStar was called then. Or actually, it was GM Hughes when it was DirecTV, but uh, not to muddle this up too much. So, so yeah, um, Satellite companies and the cable codes. Yeah, the cable codes was Telecommunications Inc., CI, otherwise known as um, Cox Communications, Comcast, those companies. And then uh, later in my career, I picked up, well, actually, at the very beginning of my career, I was an associate analyst working for a, a, a senior entertainment analyst. And we covered Viacom. And we covered companies that – we covered Turner when it was an independent company. We covered uh, Samuel Goldwyn Company, which was a small movie production company. We covered Polygram which was um, headquartered in, I think, the Netherlands and only reported twice a year, which was mm -hmm. interesting. So, of course, the whole sector went through a lot of change over that 15-year period. There was a lot of consolidation in the cable space. Uh, Comcast, uh, of course, ended up becoming the largest um, uh, cable operator, telecommunication. Uh, TCI ended up 
it, it's very circuitous. You know, TCI sold to AT&T. Comcast ended up acquiring those assets. You know, the Adelphia came and went. <laughs> there were a lot of, a lot of ups and downs and, and moving pieces. And then Directv also ended up being acquired by AT&T. Yeah, so there's a lot of ins and outs of Viacom splitting up between Viacom and CBS. Now rejoining is Viacom CBS. So, I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of. Uh, what, what I'm getting at is, in the early days, there were very few ways to get to the consumer. Uh, you either came into the house through the cable or, you know, talk about that for a minute to bring us to the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely true that in the early days, uh, there were very few ways to get to the to the consumer. Uh, really, the advent of the Internet and and what is known as over the top changed that. Right. So the, the cable what, what is over the top? Yeah, so well, I'll I'll explain that in a somewhat roundabout way. But in the if you think about what a cable operator does, so what does Comcast do? They they license networks from you know they license MTV from Viacom or TNT from from Turner. They bundle them up into these packages and then they send them over a wire that they own. Right? They send them over this combination of uh, what's called a hybrid, a hybrid fiber coaxial cable, right? So it's both fiber and coax into your house. And, and then they also will own the box in your house for that matter that they rent to you. So they're a retailer basically, but they own both the rights to distribute the content and the pipe itself. With the advent of the internet, um, you had uh, the advent of what's known as over the top, which is the uh, disconnection of the content from the pipe. So that now a consumer uh, subscribes to broadband through Comcast and then through that broadband connection can access all kinds of content. So over the top meant and means that it is uh, content available uh separated from the pipe, the underlying pipe itself. And that changed the availability to get all kinds of, of content other than, <clears throat> sorry, other than what the the uh, cable company gives you is, uh, I mean, that resulted in the explosion of content that we see today. And, you know, YouTube and Netflix and, and, uh, and, and, and Vice Media and BuzzFeed. And I mean, you know, you could go on and on and on, but that um, separation of the pipe from the content is, is what has led to this explosion of, of choice that we have today. Right. All right. So as we start moving back towards the boardroom, so tell me quickly, how were you recruited away from, I guess it was Bank America at that point to Turner? What was that all about? Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I actually left um, without a job. I, I uh, resigned from Bank of America simply because um, I was a little bit discouraged by what I thought was the direction <clears throat> of that business. The economics were changing a lot, and you, you know, you lived through this. You saw commissions go from whatever to whatever, but uh, over my career, they went from I think, you know, six or seven cents to negative to, to rebates, as you put it, um, in our in a prior conversation you and I had. Um, so I saw that the economics were being squeezed and I was just worried that the we wouldn't that as an analyst we would have more pressure to do more lower quality work. And so uh I I left without a job and I thought I didn't want to be skulking around wearing a suit on weird days, interviewing and, and doing a half ass job at being an analyst. So I said, you know what, I'm just gonna leave and I'm gonna go find something else. So after I left, I started having conversations, and uh, at that time, the head of I, investor relations for Time Warner called me up and said, "Let's have lunch." And he said, "I think you should come do this." And and then was you know 
a hop, skip, and jump to, to taking that job. Very interesting. So you sit in the room, you hear your first investor call, which means at the end of the quarter, the company is reporting their earnings and significant facts back to Wall Street. An analyst in your old job would interpret that, and theoretically, the stock would move on that news. Yeah, exactly. All right. So you were in that position for about six years? Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I presume then you got a promotion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, as I said, the 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 through line of my career is focusing on these big, longer-term strategic issues. And when I took the role running investor relations for Time Warner, what, what was appealing about it is um, at Time Warner, investor relations is considered a strategic role. That's not always the case. Sometimes investor relations uh, can be almost like a glorified financial publicist role where someone tells you, he gives you a sheet with the, you know, the, here, here's the talking points, go call your 50 closest friends or whatever. At Time Warner, that job's always had a real seat at the table strategically um, and, you know, long, long predating me. It's just, the, it's just the nature of what that role has been. I saw it as an opportunity to uh, affect strategy from that seat. And then for me, the logical or, or the desired path was to get closer and closer to um, more explicitly strategic roles, if that makes sense. So quickly, um, how did they use the IR role as a strategic position? You had a seat at the table, so you had good information. But then as broadcaster of the news, I guess I would say, or as in, in your position, uh, they gave you some power. So how did you wield that? Um, <laughs> well, it's... It, uh, I guess I don't know if I would say wield is the right word, but the um, but there were there was a couple of ways to affect uh, strategy from that seat. One is that, um, that you know, as you say, that that role, the IR role, is really the conduit between. Um, it's a, it's and I say conduit because it's two way. It's a it's a conduit between uh, the the company and the street. Um, so on the one hand, uh, I was. Um, you know, the key part of that role is structuring the messaging, you know, basically saying, here's what we're going to say. Here's our, here's our corporate positioning. Uh, you need to make sure that that's consistent with the, with the corporate communications function and consistent with what you're doing internally. And at, at Time Warner, uh, it's a very broad mandate because again, the nature of this company, if they were considering any sort of major um, major corporate action, you know, whether that might mean a divestiture, an acquisition, a major uh, investment, a major new business initiative, uh, a major change in capital allocation philosophy, any of those things. The first question always was, well, what's the street going to think about this? Is the street going to puke all over this? Are they going to like it? You know, so you know, given like your said, background, they utilized all your skills and as conduit, you could provide good information going both ways to make better strategic decisions. Yes. Yes. So you, you just answered that a lot better than I did, but that's right. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, uh, yeah, I mean, basically the company would look to the street for intelligence about what, um, what was going on in the sector and what they cared about. And then, um, and, and as I said, anytime anything was being contemplated, there was any major strategic action was being contemplated. There was always one of the first questions was what's the street going to think? Um, the other thing is that uh, oftentimes 
being in that role, talking to investors, hearing the questions that investors ask. You know, once you start once you start hearing the same kinds of questions from from uh, the most incisive or intelligent or well-connected investors, you realize, well, okay, this is topical. We better figure this out. And so there it becomes an interesting uh, for external pressure to figure out major strategic issues that we might not have otherwise cared about. Uh, or there might not have been the impetus uh, or, or the urgency to figure out. Because if your head of IR is taking your CEO out to visit investors in Boston, and uh, he and you sit he or she down in front of you know twelve people, and they start peppering you know the CEO with all these questions. If the CEO is not prepared to answer them, the, you know he's going to walk out of the meeting and he's going to point a finger in face like, "Why didn't you warn me that I was going to have to know the answer to these things?" So, what ends up it's a little bit of the tail wagging the dog, but oftentimes the investor relations function ends up driving strategy because um, the need to have a coherent answer to these kinds of questions actually will uh, inform. The, the strategy, you know, because if you say, well, here's the, the question is, they're going to ask X, and I think, let's get together and decide what the answer is, and we decide, okay, the answer should be Y, and then someone says, wait, if the answer is Y, don't you think we actually have to do Y? It's like, yeah, oh boy, we probably should do that, so uh, I think that happens. So by having the, the, the pulse of both sides, you hopefully come to better decisions. Not only that, but that, as I said, the the uh, the street because it does not uh, restrict itself in terms of the scope of the kinds of questions it asks. Um, <laughs> That's it a nice will, way to put it. You know, yeah, it, it will it will force the it'll force the if they're asking a question, you better have an answer. And, and, and the reason you, we and, talk about the street is the the street is the source of capital. So as you're doing acquisitions and the like, you have to turn to quote the street for this capital. Yes, there's also a uh, slightly more jaundiced answer, which is that a lot of these senior executives um, are uh, they consider well two things. One is they will consider the the stock price over some you know some period of time they'll consider the stock price a barometer of their success. It's uh, getting marked to market every day whether the whether people uh, mm-hmm. whether the the public at large agrees with your strategy and also you know a large part of their compensation is tied to the stock. They are very much aligned. Their interests are very much aligned with the the stock going up, and yeah. the street's uh, view perception of the company is going to determine the, the the direction of the stock. So, can I dig into that for a second and, and read that the executives at Turner were of that ilk, and they paid close attention to their stock price and vis-a-vis compensation, et cetera? Yeah, I think, well, I think Time Warner generally, I, I think that's probably the case for most companies. Again, way predating me, I believe if my uh, there's a um, there's an old biography of Steve Ross, who was the man who founded sure. and created and cobbled together Time Warner called Master of the Game. And I, and if memory serves, he was one of the first executives to um, pay himself and his own uh, lieutenants with a lot of stock options. So that was the beginning. And I don't really know, sometime in the 80s, I think it became more prevalent for executives to get paid with stock. But ever since then, I think that uh, for in a lot of companies, probably probably in more, you know, I think it's the case more often than it's not, that the stock that there's they pay a lot of attention to the stock. All right. So now you've got 
you're moving into strategy formally, and it looks like you've got about 10, 11 years in that role. What changed to Turner, um, you know, overall vision of the world and maybe one or two or three of the largest, you know, acquisitions or sales that you oversaw and how it, how it comes together as we move to the discussion of your article? Wow, that's a very broad question. I, the, the, the biggest shift, which was, which happened over a very long time frame was, uh, uh, something we referred to earlier, which is the advent of over the top and the emergence of Netflix and the impact that that had on the traditional pay TV ecosystem, right? So Turner in particular, um, and for that matter, at Time Warner HBO, this is also, um, you know, and and which assets did Turner own at this point? So we get but a so Turner, Turner, owned, Turner was the cable network division, um, uh, or is the Turner the cable network division still? At, at now it's called Warner Media under AT and T. Um, but it, the biggest ones were TNT, TBS, CNN, Cartoon Network, and part of Cartoon Network is Adult Swim, and then um, True TV, and, and, a, and a, a, a whole slew of international networks. Um, but it's really in the business of licensing its networks to uh, cable and satellite and telecom distributors and then um, uh, reaping license fees, affiliate fees for that lead license, so getting paid per month um, by each of those distributors, some kind of fee per month per subscriber. And then also, secondly, um, selling advertising uh, on those networks. So it's it's a dual dual revenue stream business, primarily dual revenue stream business, a combination of both affiliate fees and advertising. So the, so the way it works is a customer at home pays their monthly cable bill, if your stations are part of that package, there's a little piece of that bill that goes back to Turner. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And that's the affiliate fee part. All right. So then here comes the Internet. And yes. it's bigger, stronger, faster. And you've written an article, The Future of Media, Fewer Bigger Hits, and Even Longer Tail, No Middle and Lower Returns. Yeah. So... Take us into that and <laughs> the the internet and you, you spoke of over the top and Netflix, which everyone is obviously familiar with, you know, the impact on the traditional model and then please lead us into the article. The Yeah, the major change, as I said, was the advent of, of over the top and, uh, and Netflix. And initially, you know, remember Netflix was just a DVD by mail service and then it... Uh, it offers kind of a crappy free streaming add-on, and everybody dismissed it. You know, who cares? And then, Stars licensed its catalog. Uh, this is a Stars is a is a premium cable network like HBO or Showtime, as many people know. Um, and it was licensing its network to the cable operators to sell to their customers, but then also license the same catalog of, of content to Netflix for a very small amount and really gave Netflix a huge leg up. And then from then on, at, at each point in the process, the incumbents were dismissive. You know, it's kind of a crappy product, old stuff. Okay, now they have the star stuff. That's a little better. Then they get a little more stuff. That's a little better than they introduced the first originals. Uh, Lily Hammer, I think, might have been the first one, which was kind of a bit of a dud. Well, now they got House of Cards. Well, actually, that's kind of good, and and on and on and on. And they just kept on marching up the quality curve. And and of course, today, uh, Netflix is is to this uh, 
equivocally, but it's it's certainly one of the most powerful forces, if not the most powerful force in Hollywood, right? So it went from being a you know some kind of pesky fly on the uh, or gnat on the back of of the entertainment business to becoming the whatever the whatever the strained analogy is, but right. uh, you know it's it went from from being the the uh, the gnat on the back of the water buffalo to being the the elephant in the room, right? That's what what changed. And so, for the the for the, for all of the big media conglomerates, they all have a significant uh, cable programming division. And in the case of of Time Warner, that was uh, both Turner and HBO. In the case of Disney, that's the uh, obviously ESPN and and the whole suite of Disney channels. And you can kind of go down the line. Uh, NBC Universal and Viacom and all have large stables of cable programming networks. And the point I'm making there is that all of these companies are highly reliant economically on the health of the pay TV ecosystem. What started to happen with the advent of Netflix and and in a, in a slightly different way also YouTube and then the explosion of video content on the internet was that it started to undermine the economic health of the pay TV business, first in the form of viewership. Um, So again, these cable programming networks, their economics are based on both viewership and affiliate fees. And at first, people weren't really cutting the cord, so they weren't disconnecting service. They were still paying Comcast, and Comcast was still paying you know, Turner for CNN, but they started watching less. So the first thing that happened was that viewership started to decline. In some cases, you know, quite precipitously, which started to affect advertising revenue. Um, but the affiliate revenue was still going up, and it was going up because the cable programmers still had pricing power. They're still able to push through price increases to Comcast, who then pushed through price increases to their customers. So at first, you just had pressure on advertising revenue growth. Um, so let me see. Then, let me stop you there. Let me see if I get sure. So what's happening is just as Netflix has, you know, continued to gain power and YouTube and some of the other elements are happening and there's more free content online, the, the affiliate fees are, are going up because customers cable bills are going up. So it almost seems like the wrong way to go, right? They're raising prices on you, yet you've got free content available somewhere else. Yeah, I think that that is ultimately what happened is, uh, and, it, and it gets very, you know, it gets kind of complicated. But 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 yes, what was happening was, um, again, these are dual revenue stream businesses. And as this um, explosion of, of not necessarily free content, but alternative content. As you had this explosion of alternative content started to eat into viewership, which started to eat into ad revenue, but the affiliate side was still going up, and it was still going up, yes, because the cable programmers were still pushing through price increases to the distributors who were then passing on those price increases. Um, the, the coda here, or the footnote, is a lot of that pricing pressure has been driven by sports. So that's that's a whole other kettle of fish to talk about. But in any case, yes, the overall dynamic was um, affiliate revenue okay, still growing, um, advertising revenue under pressure, and all the time Netflix is getting bigger and YouTube's getting bigger. And uh, then Apple, you know, we're getting into the more recent history, but then Apple starts to, well, Amazon obviously came in and then Apple starts to to come in around the periphery. And so at the same time that all this is happening, you start to see that the cost of talent and rights is getting bid up more. So you have both um, 
you know, growing revenue pressure and, and growing cost pressure at the same time, which is what's happening. As the quality of all these different over-the-top alternatives kept increasing and, and the options kept increasing, and you've seen the launch of Disney+, Plus and you've seen the launch of HBO Max, now you're really starting to see uh, not only the advertising revenue impacted, but also you're starting to see affiliate revenue impacted, that the pace of cord cutting has has really started to pick up. Uh, for the last couple years, it was common to see um, you went from kind of flat year-over-year growth in pay TV subs to maybe down a percent, maybe down 2%. You had the advent of these virtual uh, uh, cable companies, whether it's you know Hulu Live or YouTube TV, these companies who were selling packages of networks over the top, and that helped um, – you know that helped uh, offset some of the declines, but now we're we're in full scale decline, and a lot of the analysts are looking for pay TV subs to be down in 2020 in the in the high single digits. Just to recap, you've got now you have Amazon, Netflix, Hulu, um, you know, and a host of others with their traditionals at one end of the spectrum, all competing for the, the high end content, which is becoming more expensive to produce at yep. the same time, the traditional revenue streams are falling because people are cutting the cord because they can buy cheaper individual packages elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, <laughs> yes. I mean, it's kind of, if you back up from it, it's really just that the, the barriers to entry uh, fell to distribute content and a lot of new competitors came in and, and whenever that happens, um, margins go down. It's kind of a classic Michael Porter five forces uh, phenomenon. Yeah, so that's been playing. So, so to go back to your question, let's see where we left off. And I, I apologize. The, no, no problem. We... Yes, but like, what were the changes that I was focused on, and what uh, did we do about it? Um, right. So we had and Netflix we had a... and Amazon and everybody at uh, at the one end bidding up prices for talent just at yep. the time that the affiliate revenues were falling, and now we're going to start to talk about the tail, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, yeah, some, something like that. I mean, the sequencing, it, all this stuff literally played out over a, over a long time frame, and uh, you could sort of, you could see it happening. I think in the in the essay you referred to, I, at one point I think I, I called it a, like watching a slow motion car crash because you could see all this stuff happening. Um, it wasn't that hard to figure out. Cert- certainly, certain elements. It wasn't that hard to figure out where it was going to go. It was just very hard to do anything about it. So, when do they sort of wake up and realize, uh oh, there's a bit, there's a major change here, and we've got to react? Even more complicated than that. I think that they're. So, Inside an organization like that, I think you have a lot of people paying attention to what's going on. Some are more open to uh, change than others. Some are more um, receptive to seeing change than others, meaning that uh, there are going to be people who um, uh, are, you know, uh, (laughs) through some combination of cognitive bias or willful blindness um, are, are just going to be dismissive of uh, the trends that a lot of other people are worried about. So you have this whole mix of things going on, but then once you start to get to, when you start to move beyond even the divisional level and, and talk to people at the other divisions, and at time Warner, the other divisions were HBO, which is the premium cable network division, and Warner Brothers, who's the uh, big TV and film producer. 
And then you talk to people at the corporate level, and there's going to be just a, a bunch of different opinions. And um, the, a lot of times the challenge is just getting everybody to row in the same direction. So you may, be, you may have some people shouting from the rooftops, uh, hey, the house is on fire. And it doesn't take in, – so, in certain cases – So this is, this is the yeah. turning the battleship analogy. Yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, it's just, yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it's. Um, there's all kinds of analogies, but yes, it's, it's like turning a battleship. But it's also you have a bunch of different, uh, you have many different personalities and many different interests and and vested interests and misaligned interests, and it's just really, really hard to effectuate change. The other thing to consider is that. Um, and this is the innovator's dilemma. This is the the heart of the problem. Is that uh, if you're a, you're an established company and you have existing um, distribution partners, you have existing revenue streams, and now you need to go and uh, cannibalize yourself, it can be very very difficult to do. So to make it more specific, let's say you're HBO and you decide you think, okay, um, we. I, I, well, uh, let, let me pause. I think watching the advent of Over the Top, it became clear pretty early on that it was gonna, that there were these two ecosystems evolving. There was the traditional pay TV ecosystem, and then there was this emerging alternative ecosystem of Netflix and YouTube and on and on and on. And as the um, uh, traditional ecosystem started to stagnate and the new ecosystem started to grow, it became very clear that it was going to be imperative for all of the traditional players to be just as relevant outside the traditional ecosystem as inside. So to be just as important as relevant in the new ecosystem as in the old ecosystem. So let's stop um, right there. And, and sure. Let me, let me ask you to outline the article. Right, the, the major thesis, yes. and we'll because you're getting right into it. But for those that haven't read it yet, well, I mean the, that article is uh, is really an attempt to crystallize a bunch of thoughts that have been kind of rattling around in my head for a long time. And um, and as as anyone could glean from from listening to this conversation so far, there's just a lot of moving parts, right? And a lot of times it's just messy and. And when you get into rights and personalities and different companies and, and market structure and all that stuff, um, it can often be hard to separate the signal from the noise. And, and uh, having said that, um, I'm a big believer in frameworks and that a good framework can help you figure out what's important and what isn't. And so the, the, what this essay does is it, it attempts to apply two different frameworks to figuring out where the media business is going to go and, well, for that matter, where it's been, but also where it's going to go. And the two frameworks are Clayton Christensen's theory of disruptive innovation, which I think is one of the most potent and um, you know, powerful uh, management theories that come out in the last 50 years, and also uh, Chris Anderson's theory of the long tail. Um, and we could spend a lot of time talking about each of those, but to cut to the chase, the main conclusion was that the profitability of the traditional uh, media, uh, the traditional businesses of distributing and producing content, the traditional media businesses, that the, that the profitability was structurally under pressure. Um, and so why is that? Um, on the distribution side, I think it's, it's quite clear that distribution has been commoditized by uh, digitization and the advent of the internet, the advent of networks generally. 
the cost of storing and delivering a bit has basically gone to zero. Um, and so the barriers to entry dis- to distribute media have plummeted. Like, that's not new. That's been going on for 20 years. Um, if you're a pure media distribution business, you know, forget it. Like, that's why Tower Records went away. That's what it did. It distributed media, and, and it got completely disrupted. The dynamics of that's the distribution side. On the production side, the dynamics are a little bit more subtle. Um, that production has not been commoditized by digitization. It's still very hard and expensive to make high production value content. Um, I used to work with a guy named Bill Gurley who went on to become a, one of the most successful venture capitalists, and he used to have this saying that backhoes don't obey Moore's law. And what he meant by that is that um, it isn't any cheaper to dig up streets and put to put in fiber, regardless of how fast the cost of processing power falls, right? Um, and that's true of producing content, is that the advent of digitization and networks and Mark Andreessen software eating the world and all that stuff um, – did not reduce the cost of craft service or of hiring Shonda Rhimes or of NFL rights, right? It's still really hard and really expensive to produce the highest quality stuff. But um, even in the production side of the business, profits are are under pressure. And like I said, it's, a, it's more subtle than just the kind of brunt, you know uh, brute force uh, dynamics of disruption. But they're under pressure for three reasons. The first thing is that the competition, you have these new entrants who have been facilitated by, new entrants have been facilitated by the plummeting cost of distribution, right? So the YouTubes and the and the Amazons and the Apples and the Netflixes and all that have been facilitated by the, the plummeting cost of distribution. Now they've gotten bigger and bigger and more and more powerful. Um, and so they're bidding up the costs of, of rights and talent. So that's the first pressure. Um, the second one is that big hits are still important, but there are fewer of them, uh, so they're harder to come by, and they're also more unpredictable. And that also, you know, it puts pressure on returns. Higher risk means lower returns, just like a so. So you you bet on a pirate to the Caribbean, and it flops or succeeds. Big risk, maybe big return. Yeah, and that's always been the case. But if you look at um, what you start to see is the correlation. It used to be that there was a stronger correlation between budget and hit. You know that you could just you could buy a hit, and now that's not the case. That hits are more unpredictable, and also hits can emerge from the tail itself. You know that the biggest, you know, Charlie D'Amelio or Ninja or or whomever um, uh, are hits. Um, in a manner of speaking, in the sense that they are, you know, massive cultural phenomena that take away a lot of market share. Um, uh, so hits, hits can come. You need as many at bats as ever, but you get fewer hits than you used to. So that that's a that's a problem. And then the third thing, and I think this is where we're going to go for for probably a fair bit of this conversation, is that the the shape of consumption is shifting because the consumer definition of quality is shifting. Um, Yeah, and that's important. I think it's like, I think it's the hardest thing for entertainment executives to really get their heads around 
But TV is a good example to make this more concrete is that, you know, back in the day, the experience of watching TV was kind of the same no matter what channel you watched, right? Like you bought all your all your networks through Comcast or whomever. You had that box. You had a kind of crappy interactive program guide. The only, the only basis of a competition or the only dimension uh, uh, of quality differential was the production quality itself. How good is the show? Right. And now, you know, fast forward to today, and so many dimensions of the experience can differ. Um, you know, uh, what what form factor you're watching on? Are there ads? You know, is it on my Roku? Um, how many episodes are stacked? You know, if I go watch this show, do they have multiple seasons or multiple episodes of the season? Um, and then things like, oh, well, is the show authentic? Is it relatable? Is it viral? Is it relevant to my sub-community or my niche interest? So there's all these new dimensions of quality, and um, which is not to say that consumers don't care about high production value. They still do, and people still talk about, oh, did you watch Succession? Oh, did you watch this? Did you watch that? Um, but uh, they now care about a lot of other stuff, too. And, and that starts to chip away at um, – it starts to chip away at the highest production value stuff and, uh, and the barriers to entry um, of that kind of stuff are much lower. So, so just to sum this up, I mean, the, the, the problem with, like I said, the, the problems in production are more subtle um, and probably the most, you know, as I said, well, the, just the last one, the most insidious and, and hard to grasp for a lot of people is this idea that the consumer definition of quality is shifting. Right. So let's just define that quickly. So on the one end, you have the secession or you had Disney just, you know, Disney Hamilton, you know, a few weeks yep. back. So high production value, high cost. You can watch it on your 70-inch, you know, whatever it is. At the same time, you can also watch it on your phone. So right. when, you, when you look at the customer, the change in customer definition of quality, it affects the, the high end. But we haven't yet talked about the defined what the tail is. And mm-hmm. the, the, let's talk about the tail a little bit and what's happening there and why the multiple devices, you know, iPad, phone or whatever it might be, is even more relevant at that end. Yeah, so the tail is an, is an interesting phrase because um, this refers back to uh, what, what I mentioned earlier, Chris Anderson's theory of the long tail. And, and he wrote this article in Wired and, uh, gosh, I don't remember when it was, um, but uh, like I think it was like fifteen, sixteen years ago, and he and the tail the tail described just sorry the idea of the long tail initially was that um, there's a lot of you know records or at the time records or um, uh, TV shows or a lot of content that um, didn't uh, sell enough to justify the shelf space of physical distribution. That a Walmart or a Tower Records only had so much shelf space, and if a, if a, if a CD didn't sell enough units in a given year, it just wouldn't be on the shelf. It couldn't. It didn't make sense. But that in a digital environment um, where there's no marginal cost to store, you know, almost infinite content, all that stuff's available. And so the theory of the long tail initially was that um, if you look at the threshold. Uh, for uh, physical distribution, and you look at all of the content that falls to the right of that, meaning all the all that content that w- it doesn't sell enough to uh, warrant physical distribution, that in fact, in totality, that that's a lot of stuff that people are going to buy. 
And, um, and so that was the idea, is that if you looked at Rhapsody, which I think at the time was owned by Real Networks, and um, if you said, okay, the average Walmart can, can, uh, or Tower Records can have 100,000 units or 80,000 units or whatever, but that um, Rhapsody could have 600,000 or 700,000 or whatever the number was, that if you looked at the, let's say, half a million uh, music songs that could be on Rhapsody that would never get distributed through a Walmart, that in totality that might represent 20 or 30 or 40 percent of the listening on Rhapsody. And so that, that, that the, 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 the total area under the tail, that was the tail. Um, what changed after that article or in the intervening you know, many years is that the tail is not you know, the three or 400,000 or 500,000 songs on Rhapsody, it is, it's the, it's the enormity of, uh, of content that's getting uploaded to YouTube every minute. It's the, um, it's the enormity of the songs getting, uh, uploaded to SoundCloud every minute. So the, the tail is, is, um, is just massive. There's 31 million YouTube channels, um, which is just hard to grasp. And, in the uh, in that essay, I mentioned that if you look at the amount of content uploaded to YouTube, it's it's equivalent to the entire all the original production on uh, television in a given year gets uploaded every 15 minutes to YouTube. Yeah, so let's so that's let's, the think, tale. let's think about that for a second. Yeah. So all the content that was produced in a year mm-hmm. is now being uploaded to YouTube every 15 minutes. Yes. Something and like that. Something like that. And in the old <laughs> yeah. days, the the tail also was just described as the physical units that could be sold at Tower Records or books at Barnes and Noble and all these other things. It was defined a much different way. And the, the availability of content is now just exploded. Yeah, and uh, well, just to draw a, a, a subtle distinction, but it was it was the tale was originally conceived as all of the professionally produced content that doesn't make it to physical distribution, but that still someone's going to want. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you want to listen to an eighty ska band or something, or some obscure, you know, French language, you know, rapper or something um, that you couldn't buy at Tower Records, but that you can get on Rhapsody. But what what I what Chris Anderson missed was just the this explosion of of user generated content, prosumer content, or or much lower production uh, cost content that you still call professional. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's really it's really mostly UGC. But um, I think that's that was that was user generated content. Yeah, user generated content is uh, is the bulk of it, and that has resulted in a tail that's vastly larger than than anyone. Uh, conceived it would be. Now, the, the, the parallel concept or, or critical element is increased bandwidth and zero distribution costs. Right. That, that facilitated this. This has been facilitated predominantly by that, you know, that it, it's, uh, it's only possible for YouTube to store and distribute that stuff because it costs them basically nothing to do so. The other thing that's happened in parallel is that the um, the production tools and the cost of hardware? So you know, high quality video cameras or or buying a digital camera that has that you can use as a video camera, um, you know, uh, Adobe Premiere Pro or iMovie or whatever it is. Like the the both the hardware and the software uh, have 
um, improve pretty dramatically to enable consumers to make high-quality stuff. Well, in fact, I'll be able to post this podcast across Apple and Spotify and numerous platforms for virtually a zero cost. Right. Other than the hardware. We could also do a video. We could have a camera on right now, and we could post that immediately. So zero distribution cost and an explosion of content. Yes, and then uh, yes, and I think you also have um, you have an explosion. Of, yes, you have zero distribution costs. <laughs> you have falling production costs. I think you also have this sort of um, flywheel of consumers who are more aware of the creator economy and they are uh, more facile producing stuff. So you know, to talk about my son for a second, the guy's eleven and he's. Uh, He's been of late been producing his own – he's narrating his own gaming videos. He plays video games and narrates them, and then he posts them. You know, and I don't know what he's doing, but, <laughs> but he's 11 years old, and he figured it out himself. He's like, Dad, I need to get the Flash 3.0 drive so that I can transfer these things from the <laughs> Xbox, and I got a lavalier uh, adapter for my iPhone so I can narrate them at the same time, and I'm going to edit the audio and video files together. I'm like, I'm like, go with God, buddy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yes, I think it's it's all those things in comparison, and there's really uh, it's very hard to put it this way. It's very hard to construct a scenario where that doesn't continue to grow by leaps and bounds. So as you know, I have an interest in in a company that creates intellectual property vis-a-vis a live stream, and we live stream music, and we could do that in conjunction with the release of new music. And I argue that this will lead to the the second coming of the indie artist, which may be the you know artist out of the garage, or it could be you know someone who's been around for ten or twenty years and wants to take control of their content. And you know I can do this now because of the relative lack of distribution cost and the ability to produce decent to good quality content even very good quality content at a fraction of what it used to cost. Yep. So what I ask is, as, as you look at this, what happens, and we haven't talked much about this yet, so I really don't know your answer, but to the, the value of intellectual property rights um, at I both ends it, of the spectrum, right? Yeah, I think that's a hard question to answer, and I think it, because I think it depends on the rights you're talking about. I think at the at the high end, be for the foreseeable future, because of this rising competition for the highest production value stuff, that there's that it's going to go up. The I think that the value of sports rights, for instance, uh, the highest of all intellectual property rights, uh, the highest value of all the highest value rights there are, are just going to keep growing um, because of the because of this fight for mind share at the very top um, and attention share. The elsewhere, um, I think in the tail, the value probably continues to get undermined because of this, um, you know, these virtually uh, non-existent barriers to entry. So I, I think that for, um, and this is a, this is a function, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but the earlier I mentioned this idea that the shape of consumption was shifting, it's really shifting in, in kind of a barbell form in the sense that there is 
um, there is a tension that shifts to the head. You know, that the, that the biggest hits are bigger than ever, um, and they're bigger than ever because of uh, virality and because it's so much easier to know what everyone else is doing or what everyone else is recommending. And they're global. And, and they're global, and I think, you know, there is still a desire to have some kind of commonality of experience. It's very hard for everyone to be on social media socializing around distinct activities. You know, you have to have something in common with people to talk about, right? So there, there is the desire for some sort of shared experience, and, and that all manifests itself in the biggest being bigger than ever. Um, and in that essay I, I, that uh, we mentioned, I show what's happened in the box office, and you can see that the biggest has gotten bigger than ever. But what's also happening is that the middle is getting completely squeezed out. So you have a lot of consumption. That's what I mean by the barbelling is that consumption shifts to the tail and it shifts to the head and then this, the, the uh, and more so to the tail really than the head. But um, it's shifting those two opposite directions and that the middle is getting completely, completely squeezed out to the point where the middle and the tail will become indistinguishable. So I think when you say like the, when you talk about the value of intellectual property rights, it really depends on where you're coming from. You know, if you're in the middle, I think that you're in trouble. That there that the value of that stuff is going to keep going down. Um, if you're at the very very end, um, I think you have to think. If you're in the tail, I think you have to think about it differently. Um, and that um, you're really you have to move toward a world of or I think you have to think more so um, it's, you have to really think more about engagement than reach you have to think more about how do you create fandom even if it's small fandom um, that you can monetize as opposed to getting it's just it's just so much harder to get to get massive reach and people will blow up and people will go by viral and, and they will make their way into the head from the tail. But that is really, really needle in the haystack kind of stuff. And I think for other people, the key will be, how do you find, um, how do you find fans who are willing to pay for your stuff? And, you know, this gets into another economic concept, which is the concept of consumer surplus that, these ad the problem with all these ad driven models and why so few people can make money on YouTube is that um that every impression has the same value regardless of the uh degree of passion of the viewer the most you know die hard fan on YouTube the most die hard fan and the most casual viewer both generate the same paltry you know of uh, 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 revenue per impression so what that means is that there's this massive consumer surplus, uh, the, uh, and, and we could, I could get into that more if you want to talk about what consumer well, surplus is. Well, but. Let, let's get back to the idea of sure. of engagement yeah. and information cascades and the influencer community. Because I yeah. think what you're talking about in, in the in the tale is if you can create a niche market of whatever size it might be of highly engaged fans, then that is clearly a monetizable event, element, piece of content, whatever it might be. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on information cascades and social media and, and how that changes the, well, let's start from the tail, but then, you know, go back to the, the high end for a minute. So in the old days, you got a TV guide and everyone knew what was going to be on at eight o'clock on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. In the new world, there's this unlimited supply of content. And 
Some of that content is going to rise to superstardom from the table, but much of it will be, you know, very niche, but still be valuable. And, and the way that happens is by either creating a social media following or using influencers or whatever it is to, you know, help to bring eyeballs to that content. It's a whole new way of looking at things. And what I'm, what I'm driving at is, you know, what is your thought on that vis-a-vis looking out three, five, ten years? Well, I, I don't think I have anything particularly insightful to say here. I think that for everybody, there's this balance between um, the size of the funnel and the degree of engagement that you can drive, right? Um, and so I guess what I would advocate is that the that everyone should be thinking in all in all media spheres of um, of uh, prioritizing the engagement over the reach, and, and meaning, start with engagement first, and then and then use that to to drive the reach, which is a little bit of a of maybe um, an inversion of the traditional thinking. Yeah, I think uh, as I said, I think you you know you want to make sure that you're creating something that somebody's going to really care about uh, first and foremost, because the way you're going to monetize is um, is by uh, having this huge, you know, you need to create the funnel so you're going to drive people to your product, but then the way you're going to monetize most likely is by getting a very small subset of those people to actually pay for your content. Um, so if you focus first on just having the biggest funnel, but that you're not actually creating a degree, a high degree of engagement, then it's all for naught. I think, you know, and, and I think this dovetails well with, I mean, so many artistic, most, uh, I don't know, I would say the vast majority of artistic endeavors are done, uh, in a, in a, for very idealistic reasons because the artists are very passionate about what they're doing. And so, um, I think that has to be the, the starting point for everybody is, um, inciting that same passion in, uh, in fans and then worry about how you, how you create that funnel and how you drive, how you drive sampling and, um, uh, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but um, I think starting with I don't know my my sense is that starting with the the, the funnel and having the biggest office, uh, the audience possible is is going to be a, a futile effort if you're not actually inspiring passion in some subset of those people. And it, it does answer my question. So let's take your son or a, a person of his generation. He really only knows this model for the most part. Right? He goes to see, I'm sure you take him to see the big hits and all of that. But yep. his day-to-day is, you know, through his phone or whatever gaming device he's using. And three to five years through his eyes or 10 years through his eyes. I mean, can you imagine him consuming any other way? It's hard to think out that far. <laughs> it's it's hard to it's hard to envision how it might change. Um, but he's not going the other way. I mean, he's not going back to uh, you know watching the 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 biggest hits. Um, or you know, he's not going back to the middle. He's not going back to ever turn on the TV and seeing what's on. That's for sure. I think the only question is how does he how does he get to how does he get to find the stuff that he um, 
wants to spend his time on. You know, so for right now, he goes to YouTube and um, he watches, you know, Streamer X, and uh, he watches Dude Perfect, and he watches an NBA um, highlight compilation. And then the next day, he logs on. And the algorithm has pushed him to something similar, or here's a different streamer, or um, uh, you know, uh, he's watching one streamer, and another streamer shows up in that guy's feed, or is a friend of his, or whatever, and then he decides to check that guy out. You know, it's that's how he gets the content. This, I mean, he he largely gets the content either through. Uh, word of mouth, or he gets there through a uh, a recommendation algorithm, and it's you know it's hard to see that that sh- changes a lot. I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not sure how that changes over time. I mean, his community will change. The source of his word of mouth, what he cares about, will change. Sure. But really, it just seems like that is. Um, the front door to uh, to all content is probably is going to be um, one's uh, one social network and the algorithms on the platforms that one frequents. Agreed. So, with that in mind, how do the incumbents address him? Um, I think that the young incumbents are going to struggle. I think that they are um, going to continue. They they have little choice but to continue pushing in the direction of the highest production value stuff. It's what they know how to do, and they will continue to do it. Um, but that there will likely be a a dwindling. There'll be a, a declining return on that activity. There'll be declining usage and there'll be declining profits. And I don't know that there's a way out of that. Um, If you look at where value is flowing to, value is flowing really to three places. One is to consumers um, because they're having – now they have a lot more choice and a lot more investment in content, often at lower prices, uh, sometimes a price of free. It's also flowing to the the talent and the rights owners and probably the agencies are the ones that represent them. And then it's flowing into the tail. And historically, what that has meant really is it's flowing to the, the aggregators of the tail, not not the creators, right? It's the 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 you know classic uh I don't know if, if you ever read any George Gilder, but this idea sure. that um you know the value flows yeah, back in the back it, in the, it used to come by fax machine. Yeah, <laughs> ironically enough, but he he I don't know what his quote is. I'm sure going to screw it up, but it was something something to the effect of that value flows um, uh, and every that every economic age is defined by by what resources are scarce and what resources are abundant, and so we have gone from a world where uh, content was scarce and uh, aggregation was abundant, right? So meaning uh, there were only, you know, go back to three networks, right? So, or even the beginning of cable, there's not that much content out there on television, let's say. Um, so the content was scarce, but but the ability to produce a TV guide, right, uh, was abundant. There, you know, there wasn't a lot of value created by TV guide. Now we have flipped that where content is, you know, infinite, constant practically, it's content is abundant but the curation or the aggregation of it is very scarce. And that's why such enormous value has accrued to 
you name it, you know, Facebook or uh, or, or Google slash you know, Alphabet, YouTube, whatever. Um, you know, that the that it's the platforms that have generated all the value. Um, so I think for you know, and to me, for the 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 interesting thing that's happening in the creator economy is um, is that there are these new models that have emerged that are enabling creators, more creators to make a living wage. Uh, and I think that's the next phase that we're going to see in in the creator economy, which is which is potentially a very big opportunity. But when you go back to your question and what do the companies that traffic mostly in the head do, um, I think that um, – you know, probably they just have to learn to live with a lower return business. Tough place to be. Well, you know, it still still could be a very good business, uh, and I think you will probably see some degree of consolidation as the the strong try to get stronger. Um, and uh, but yeah, I mean, it's yes, it's always it's always hard to go from uh, more to less. All right. So as as we bring this to a close. Anything around this framework or the article that we skipped over that you think we should uh, highlight? And if not, um, any closing point you'd like to make on the future of media? Well, uh, there was one thing I was thinking about regarding quality that I don't know if it's going to be too, if it will be helpful or not, um, or if it's, yeah. Anyway, there was one thing I was thinking about as, as regards your question about, about quality, and it gets back to um, Clayton Christensen. And he he has this disruption theory, which I think a lot of people have heard of, and and mostly what people think of it as um, this idea of low end disruption. And what that means is that um, somebody comes in from the low end with a new entrant emerges. They have a product that's not that's cheaper and is is lower quality than the incumbent's product. The incumbent ignores it, but it proves to be good enough for some. Some some subset of customers they adopt it, and then as this thing gains scale, it keeps getting better and better, and it keeps on you know picking off uh, higher quality customers from the incumbent, and that's how disruption happens, right? So again, let's think about Netflix. They come in cheap, crappy streaming product, get better. You know the the incumbents are dismissive and uh, about it. Then it keeps getting better and better and better, and picking off uh, more and more of the incumbents customers. So I think people are pretty familiar with that model of disruption. What they're maybe a little bit less familiar with is that there's another kind of disruption that Christensen talks about, which is the idea of new market disruption. And the key part of that is that when these new entrants come in, it's not just that they offer a lower quality product, a lower price, and that's how they get their foothold. It's also that they start offering all these new features. Um, and at first, everyone ignores those features. They don't care. Um, but if they become important enough, that's how the consumer definition of quality changes because all of a sudden consumers start to care about something else. So you know, Airbnb is a really good example. I mean, you hear that. I remember hearing about it thinking, well, that's a stupid idea. Who wants to sleep on someone's couch, right? That's idiotic. Um, and they came in as a low market disruption, right? They came in uh, and it was a lot cheaper, and but it, it had lower performance along a bunch of measures, like it's less secure, it's less reliable, um, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's it's not uh, it's not the tried and true going to the Marriott or whatever, right? But 
it also offered a whole bunch of new features, things like um, having a full-service kitchen or having more space or being in a quaint neighborhood or having more privacy or having a washer-dryer, right? And so all of a sudden, it introduces all these new features, and there are today some uh, lodging consumers, some hotel consumers, that, where Airbnb has completely changed their definition of quality, and they really care about those features. So that's how this happens, right? The, the way the quality, the way that the consumer definition of quality changes, is that someone shows up with these new features that um, that people initially dismiss, and all of a sudden they start becoming really important, and or they prove to be really important, and that's how the definition of quality shifts. And I think a lot of times what happens is incumbents understand the low market. Uh, disruption. They understand someone coming in with a lower uh, quality, lower price product. They don't understand this changing definition of quality. They have a very hard time getting their head around the fact that their definition of quality and consumers' definition of quality is diverging. So, for example, Hulu or Netflix allowing multiple people to watch the same show together from different locations, sharing that show. Sure. Or, yeah, or uh, or, you know, um, or being ad free, or um, having a really good UI where it's where it's easy to navigate, or um, the you know having playback markers so that if you pause the show on you know watching a show on Netflix ah. on your phone and you pause it and you get home right. and then you go start it on your TV and it knows where you were right <laughs> you know so the whole notion of product um, is uh, completely foreign. Most of the media companies have been wholesalers. Uh, they don't have direct relationships with com- customers. They have not had product expertise to speak of, and now they're competing with data and product companies. Um, and they don't know how to manipulate data and, and use it. They don't know how to create a, a, a delightful product, and um, and that becomes uh, these new dimensions of quality that they're. You know, they're initially dismissive of, and then ultimately once they, they come around to realizing they're important, they're very ill-equipped to actually compete. All right, so I want to spend the last few minutes. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the stock market. But before I get to a direct stock market question, who does Netflix buy next? Uh, well, I don't know that Netflix, I'm trying to remember if Netflix has ever bought anybody. Netflix is, <laughs> I don't know, Netflix is not, um, Or consolidation. What does consolidation look like from from more of the upstarts as opposed to the incumbents? Um, That's really – that's a good question, and I don't know. Um, In in the television business, Netflix has a very unique culture that um, I think it – it uh, is a, it's a it's a culture they're very proud of, and I think it's a culture they'd be very remiss to muck about with. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that would be uh, I, I think that they would be reluctant to make any any major acquisitions. Um, and I won't ask about Amazon because they'll buy everybody. Right. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's you know, it's an interesting dynamic because um, certainly when you look in the TV business, one of the things that we didn't talk about, but that has that has definitely changed, is that you have a lot of the new entrants in television don't actually need to make money in television, right? They um, are these 
they ha- they have some either monopolistic or quasi monopolistic positions somewhere along the supply chain. So someone owns search, someone owns social, someone owns retail. I mean, you can enter the mm-hmm. who who who's who there and the uh, fill in the blanks. Um, and so the, to the degree to which they can use television as a way of driving value to the to the part of the supply chain where they have power, they will be happy to. Um, you know, run these TV businesses at, at zero profit, zero discrete profit to drive profit someplace else. So um, I think you have to think of it. I think you, you need to think about um, when you think about M&A, it's, a, it's probably useful to have that, uh, to keep that idea in the back of your mind when you think about how these companies are motivated. It's not necessarily the fact that they need to generate the most scale. They have some sort of optimal optimal distribution, optimal product quality, optimal size or whatever that does that achieves the goal they have. So if 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 Apple has created Apple TV not necessarily as a discrete profit center but as a way of driving even more uh lock in into their device ecosystem, then that's a different kind of calculus uh, than Netflix might have, where Netflix is really motivated to ultimately generate the most profit from its from its television business, because that's all it does. So that's a lot of words to say, I don't know. <laughs> well, let's talk about the equity market for a minute. I would be remiss, like I said, if I don't ask. Uh, we're in the middle of COVID, or somewhere along the line in COVID. Uh, we've got big unemployment. We've got the Treasury opening its checkbook like, Never before. Stock markets at all time highs, plus or minus. What do you, what do you think? Well, me, I mean, luckily, uh, um, no one has to, um, uh, you know, no, no, luckily no one's taken my advice on these matters. I don't understand it at all. I mean, I think, you know, the, the clearly the, the order of the day has been don't fight the Fed. And when you have, um, so much liquidity being pumped into the market and the alternative uh, investment, you know, when interest rates are so incredibly low, I think um, uh, you have you have incredible liquidity, you have extremely low rates, and then I guess um, you have some degree of speculative activity going on, and that's all of what is conspiring to drive equity valuations higher. It seems like we're going to have to pay the piper at some point. Um, but uh, with you know modern monetary theory and the ability to just to continue pumping more liquidity into the market, I'm not sure what the catalyst is. Modern so I don't I don't theory. get it. I mean I I I took a large portion of um, my own portfolio to cash a while ago, feeling like. Um, uh, I was being really smart, and then <laughs> I missed a big move up, and now I'm looking at it, I'm like, I don't get this. Uh, but, you know, so I, I'm not necessarily the one to ask. Well, I would say that, that you and I are in the same boat. I see the world the same way vis-a-vis the market. Um, I, too, went to a large portion of cash. I really don't understand it other than the don't fight the Fed, as we've talked about. Um you know, we'll just we'll just have to see. And I, I guess uh, no one's listening to me either. But you know, next to my name in red, you could just write wrong, right? <laughs> because I, I've been wrong, and you know, I'm I'm looking for the piper as well. But we'll just have to see. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll just say it this way. I'm in cash. I certainly haven't gone short yet. I'm not there. Don't so thankful for that. I thought about it. There was a while, not that long ago, a couple months ago, when I was definitely, I think, after the big move up off the bottom on the 20s or whatever that was, at, at, um, off that big move off the bottom after, I don't know, maybe – I don't know, three, four weeks later, a month later, whatever it was. I'm like, okay, this is it. This is this was the dead cat bounce, and and it's getting kind of dicey in here. And this is when we're going to really move lower. And I was very close to pulling the trigger on 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 going short the market and did not. Um, more from laziness than anything else. And so, <laughs> I guess I the the best I can say is that I dodged a bullet. Yeah, I guess that makes two of us. 